Today is Mother's Day, and as we continue this passage, this passage has a special meaning uh, in our series, and it will have a special meaning for mothers among us as well. Um, the passage, the sermon text is Second Corinthians chapter two, verse twelve through seventeen. And there is a slight turn in uh, Paul's letter to Corinthians in here. And remember the beginning of the series, I said that this is one of the most profoundly transparent. Uh, if you want to get to know Paul's heart, you should read, the book, read this letter. And if you want to know what that authentic Christian life as well as authentic Christian leader, you should read this letter. And the one thing I'm going to ha give you heads up, of course Paul's going to talk about his life and his ministry as an apostle. But his ministry, he says, uh, under the new covenant. Paul's ministry under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, there is no special case or class like priests in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant. So the apostle, apostolic office role was very unique uh, during the time when Jesus sent those uh, 12 disciples along with Paul, and maybe the half-brother of Jesus, James. But in our there is no capital A apostles. But in, under the new covenant, we are all ministers. Which means that Crossway, biblical guidance, scripture guidance for each one of us is every member is a minister. The pastor is a, a type of a minister. And if you are home group member, is a minister in that home group community. And as a leader uh, in many different types of ministries, children's youth and outreach and missions, even without a title, so I ask you today to not to exclude yourself as you hear Paul's heart for his ministry. The beginning with, uh, we are familiar with about what's been going on. Verses 12 through 13 is still about his travel plan and explaining that. Um, and verse 12 he writes, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Okay, let's think about few things, uh, and obvious things for, for some of us, it's um, a review, but some, some of us, this is new. But in order to understand the beginning portion about his nature of his ministry, he's going to go into a digression, very important digression. This part is very uh, important to understand. First of all, why Paul came to Troas? Yes, he came to preach the gospel at Troas. And Paul's all about going to places where Christ is not preached, but his intention is to always plan a church. Start a church so that the believers can go on. In this brief moment, Paul just merely stopped by. The incredible things happened. And all the preachers, pastors, missionaries would love this kind of thing. 
Because when people respond and revival can come, ministry is so fruitful, nothing, nothing else can energize you more than that. Especially Paul. Paul's all, all about whether the door to these people at Troas would be open. Their heart would be open. And he saw instantaneously. But the real reason he went, practical reason, not only emotional reasons, it's a little complicated. He just fled from Ephesus because of life-threatening riot has occurred against Paul. And because of his um, effective, effective ministry and the people who didn't like what was going on, especially economical reasons, they're trying to kill Paul. So he fled there, uh, fled from there, and then in the midst of it all, he was looking for Titus. This, uh, um, the young man who took Paul's letter is oftentimes it's referred to as a severe letter or tearful letter because he wrote severe things with his tears and he's anxious and he's even regretful because would, would they receive this letter well? He just had a painful visit. They were rebellious against him, not just as one of the brothers, but as one who's sent by Christ. Apostolic ministry was rejected by them. So their idea was um, all these new apostles came from Jerusalem they seem to be more powerful. They're more confident. They have a letter of recommendation. And Paul, he seemed weak. His letter is strong. So that's what's going on. Paul was obviously discouraged. This is one of the most, one of the lowest time emotionally for Paul. Because he's not only despair, discouraged, but he's in despair. Think about this. Um, uh, when, when, when was the last time you lost sleep? And then when you're, when you're waking up in the middle of the night, you just, there's knots, the, the difficult, uh, the very difficult feelings are like just entangled in your stomach. It feels like you are under so much pressure. Nine out of ten times, it's not difficult things. It's difficult relationships, especially conflicts. And Paul Love them so much. And isn't it true? Those whom you love so closely, so intimately, they are the ones who are capable to hurt us even more deeply. So that was what's going on. He felt deeply discouraged and discouraged to a point that even with what's going on at Troas, he said, his heart, my heart, my spirit is on rest. Typically, Paul will just dwell here as long as the fruitful ministry continues. But he moves on to Macedonia. Macedonia is where most likely Titus will come through in order to go to Troas. So he goes there earlier and staying and waiting. 
And the interesting thing is, he does meet Titus and hear great news. Your severe letter, tearful letter was received so well. They are now repentant. This is what I mean when you look at the passage. He, he wrote that. Um, verse 13 ends with, I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And verse 14 doesn't flow well. It's a digression. But if you go to all the way to chapter 7, verse 5, listen to this way. Okay? So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Chapter 5, verse 5. And chapter 7, verse 5. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at Every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. So the question is, what's going on with this chapter 2, verse 14, through all the way to chapter 7, verse 4? It is an important digression. It's almost like, why is it here? If you read it cynically, is it inserted here? Why? And most scholars, almost all scholars, do not disagree even this part was written authentically by Paul, but the disagreement of why was placed there, there are some disagreement. But if you look at what the, Paul's letter is going through right now, the whole thing is about his defense. So it is explanation of nature of Paul's ministry under New Covenant. And he is actually doing defense, not just an apologetic way, the uh, methodical, analytical way of defending himself, but polemical way of bringing his case against so-called these super apostles. He calls them false apostles as well. They're superlative because he, they're focusing on externals, proudful externals. And Paul is doubted and rejected because of seemingly not so great externals. Paul intentionally stayed away from eloquent speeches and naming all these things that he could men mention also as well as them. But to show the demonstration of Spirit's power Paul leads his ministry with humility, weakness. And they were saying, his suffering are questionable. If he's really apostle, true apostle, how could that be? I want us to just put ourselves in issues just a few seconds. And even that is enough for us to Feel the frustration, anxiety. And then maybe it's, it's my uh, um, intuition. Maybe be before he said, I was relieved and I was comforted by Titus coming and sharing the good news. But before I do that, how I overcame is not just the Titus coming, 
how I overcame and triumphed over discouragement is because of these truth. Oh, I, I want to say more than truth. Truth is objective truth out there. Because of these three assurances, he overcame. Here's the first one. Assurance number one, God always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession through his victory over us and for us. He's reintroducing the, the letter's theme, power in weakness. I hope it doesn't make sense to you right now because it's to, to draw the effect of what I'm looking for. Because it just doesn't make sense. When you read verse 14, he's, he's words also too. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In order for us to understand this passage, before I explain, we need to understand Paul's analogies, very familiar scene of his day. Roman triumph. It has to be one clear um, either top official admiral or general and that military campaign must be thoroughly victorious and either taking over a whole region uh, or, or eliminating the threat of all enemies and then history tells us that they had about 300-some Roman triumphs. I think the best thing that, close thing that we could think of, we don't have anything like that. Let's say uh, LA Lakers win championship and they are doing parade. But in that, you know, back in my Texas days, when Dallas Cowboys won, they parade in, in through the city and the whole town stops and just watch them. <laughs> LA Lakers, we, we have Lakers fans that might, might be watching them through TV only, but excitement of the, in, in that kind of thing. But when you think about it, it's not even sane because it's a many people. But Roman triumph, it was one person is honored in place of every soldier. As you've seen this, this is a glorious thing, but I think what's not depicted clearly in that, not only musicians will follow, and there will be priests, pagan priests, with incense. The smell of this victory was filled the whole city was filled that smell. And there's more. The spoils he won. Uh, when 80, 70, when Jerusalem was taken over by Roman Empire, Titus brought the temple uh, seven candles and the base and all that gold and silver through that as well. And then after that, captives, the people who were overcame and the, who were defeated. Some are princes and princesses. Some are just slaves, the regular people who will turn into be slaves. But most of them, at the end of this parade, would be executed. Public execution happened. The paradox is this. It's not working again. Just go to the, uh, go to two more slides, please. Next one. You give me, yeah, right there. 
Thank you. The paradox is this. Um, King James translation took it, transla translated this way. That's why more modern, most understanding has been this way until recently. God always causes us to triumph. That's how John Calvin, although they do understand, they did understand the original context, and they understood it as a that we are victorious, that we are the victor, as if we are this fellow soldier fought under the admiral or general. But that's not Paul's picture here. So led by, there's a specific meaning of captives. We are led by God as captives in, captives in this trans, uh, triumphal procession. And NIV, I think, has a little bit of, of that nuance. And NLT has that. But original text says that, and quite a, several uh, commentaries of these days, starting, uh, including with the one that I'm following, Paul Burnett, I quoted in the beginning of this series, has a great insight. What it is, is that Paul's presenting paradoxical truth. He's presenting in a way that his suffering and his discouragement and his weaknesses is a way to experience victory by dying to self. When Christ overcomes me, I become victorious. That's his point. But it, it's a little complicated when you think about, okay, I die because of Christ's triumph, his victory over me. But and yet his victory over me is his victory for me and his victory in me. What is he doing? He's introducing power in weakness. The, the Paul's letter, Second Corinthian theme, all over again. Contrast that with false apostles, the super apostles. Super apostles deny any weaknesses, and they will say, "Look at my letter of." recommendation, look at what I can do, look at what, what my victories are. We have that too in these days, right? Paul later calls them peddler of God's word. Religious hucksters selling goods using God's word in ministry. But Paul is saying, my discouragement and my distressful time was good for me because that caused me surrender. And I experienced this victory. It's, this is incredible. Verse 13 was his lowest point of his troubled heart and discouragement. Verse 14, he starts with a burst of praise, isn't it? But thanks be to God, who in Christ, I underline, always, how do you always win? Not by you. Not by me, but by Christ. I, I am deeply grateful for this truth. Because if you ask me past several weeks, 
the sign of my stress is my twitching coming back. It's been discouraging time, distressful time. I had to deal with several things at the same time, including some conflicts in our church. I lost some sleep, thinking that as I'm going to a pastor's meeting, monthly meeting, uh, now I could see why some of these brothers confess their desire to quit, their desire to this harmful effect on their body, on their family, what they're going through. My good friend and my brother, fellow worker, Wade, pulls me aside and how can I encourage you or help you? Your symptoms of stress showing up. And you know what I told him? Um, facility issues, CUP, they, they don't bother me that much. I, I don't get up in the middle of that because of those things. But the, any kind of sense of conflicts and divisiveness in our church, that worries me and that affects me. And I'm discouraged, and I feel like quitting, too, at times. Would you be my friend, Wade? So I look forward to the time that Wade and I not talk about ministry as the lead pastor and youth pastor, but I long, to, long for the time that we hang out, like old days that we share our heart and I share my burden. But the point is this, as I am studying this passage, Paul's, Apostle Paul's assurance became my assurance. Nothing has changed externally that much at all. But triumph over discouragement? Yes. I see it now. Do you see that when I am so doing well and me trying to humble myself and surrender myself to the Spirit's prompting, I could be a lot of blindsided. So Roy Hessian, some of you heard this in early days, I mentioned Roy Hessian too many times, the Calvary Road. So I decided to stop mentioning at least for a while. Is it scripture guidance? Like a sola scriptura, not sola scripta plus Calvary Road kind of thing. This is another book from When I Saw Jesus. Great insight. Hessian writes, As I see it, there are three aspects to what may be called the victorious life. First, and most basic, there is his victory over me. The victorious life is not me conquering sin, but him conquering me and breaking me each time that sin comes in and taking me to the cross. Do you get it? Not me conquering sin, but him conquering me. What a victory it is when he prevails on us to break to admit to sin. And when we're called upon by God to be in the light with another about it. All our pride is against such action. And sometimes, as Jacob's case, there we wrestle a man, the angel of God, with us until the dawning of the day until he succeeds in breaking us, then there is his victory for me in set, setting me free from the hangover of guilt and self-accusation. Oh, I need that. 
This is not celebrating the attainment by the saint of some higher ground of sanctification, but the victory over guilt, self-recrimination, and sadness, which the most sinful of us may have when we see the blood of Jesus again. The third aspect of the victorious life is victory in me, that is, Jesus Christ living, in, living his life again in me. I want us to focus on the first aspect of it, his victory over me gives me triumph or triumph over anything. Your depression, your sadness, your grief, your financial problem, your discouragement, your problems with kids. Because we know his victory over me is victory for me and in me as well. Oh, I wish we understand this aspect. Because at times in our culture, triumphalism or theology of glory is more prominent, permeated to every Christian culture. So even Sunday morning, happy, bright, cheaper services encouraged everywhere. And we are beginning to learn there is a moment that we tremble before God. And there is a somber moment of God's fear on us. That's a worshipful. Worship leaders will, will come up with a list of our changes in our services as well. But would you see your weakness, your distress, and your anxieties as God's severe mercy that you will actually experience victory through that? But first, his victory over me. Then that becomes victory for me. So I am thankful, brothers and sisters, um, I have a news to share about our facility now. We have a conclusion. But I will not share today. It's in light of Mother's Day. <laughs> Lest I discourage you even more. So there's some harsh reality is that we need to face. So come next Sunday. <laughs> but the point is, I am truly beyond being honest with you. We could triumph over this. I don't know how, but we could triumph. Second assurance of Apostle Paul, God uses us as the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This, this one is summarized, I summarize it as a life or death fragrance. The same fragrance, the same aroma, resulting in two different things. Verse 15, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one of fragrance from death to death and to the other, of fragrance from life to life. So there is kind of two different sense in, in this passage. One is we are, like it or not, positionally aroma of Christ. It's the same thing as Jesus saying you are the salt of the earth. That's a positional thing. We are aroma of Christ. But the conditional thing is if you lose saltiness, what good is it? 
if you if you don't have don't do not retain salt in you. Christ-like radical countercultural differences, right? And the same thing as you are aroma of Christ, but if you lose that smell and you don't have that sweet aroma when you go to places anymore, what good is it? And then from that triumphal procession, the scent that Roman pagan priests burn fills the whole town. The town, whatever the Roman colony town, or not only the Rome city, city of Rome itself, that smell is smell of life, smell of freedom. We will not become slaves. To the other nation. But the people who are coming along as a captives, coming along as a prince and princess of the other kingdom, it smell of death. At the end of this march, they would be facing death. That's the analogy that he's doing. And let's be very clear about this. Paul's talking about sharing the gospel in one sense. In sharing the gospel in everywhere you go. That's we ought to be. We are aroma of Christ, but if you don't smell like Christ, if you don't smell the knowledge of saving knowledge of Christ, conditionally we stop being aroma of Christ. It doesn't mean that you need to be street preachers or you know cold turkey evangelism person, but you begin to share. And our evangelism ministry, led by Tuang, is excited about training and equipping us. I, I love uh, you to check that out and try out and begin to pray for your aroma. Of Christ. And because of this positional and conditional one, I think it's important for us to realize it's not only privilege, but it is responsibility. And it aches my heart when I watch TV that so many of the so called Christian leaders and Christian churches. The aroma is a stinking aroma, not Christ. It's our moral character. At your work, at your neighborhood, do they see Christ-like patience, generosity, mercy and grace or do they see vicious anger? Or look out for number one, ready to go. And then our our discipleship of Christ is only all, all about religiosity. The religious activities that we do. That's not aroma of Christ. Assurance comes from this privilege and responsibility that God is using us, not just the Apostle Paul, but each one of us as God's tool under the new covenant. Everyone is minister. But look at this. It's, it, Paul is presenting in, in a way that almost using that analogy, a different idea, and two different things. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, this is our theme verse of the church, by the way. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us 
who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is actually the same thing Paul is saying differently now. So is it in order for us to restore the quality or, of aroma of Christ? Am I being, am I experiencing the power of God in my salvation? Or is it a nonsense to me? Foolish thing to me? I hope not. Because that, that will be the sign of your salvation is not true salvation. But it is really exciting to think about for the most part as we are struggling in our lives that God is still using us powerfully. Third and last assurance Paul has is our efficiency comes from God, speaking the truth sincerely with Christ's authority before God. The summary for this will be sufficiency from God. After sharing about aroma of Christ, he is asking this question not only to the readers, but to himself also, also too. Verse 16, the latter part. Who is sufficient for these things? No one. It's a rhetorical question. Who is adequate for this thing? What kind of training does one need? What kind of mentor? What kind of seminary do you need to go for this? Nothing can really make one sufficient. You see, he is suddenly going polymedic way of defending himself against the false apostles. In our days, I think we should think about the people who seem to be so confident in their externals. Many of them are on TV and television lists who are selling goods, who is powerfully rich. And we should really think about what Paul is saying. Verse 17, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. He's he's presenting himself not as a, okay, they are not really true, but I have the true power. You have to listen to me. No. Actually what he's saying is the paradoxical truth is shared and then he now asks questions about who is adequate for this, this kind of task? No one. I want you to know and I want you to know as well our sufficiency is not from us. My sufficiency is not from us. My true encouragement is not from us. The remaining chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, until chapter 7, verse 4, he expands on this. It's a remarkable. And I, I invite you to read ahead and meditate ahead. Feel free to do so. What does it look like? You know, you know, the reason why nothing changed, I, I, I begin to feel more confident about what's ahead. <coughs> According to what Paul's going through this, the assurance, nothing I could change make me feel absolutely confident. Do you see that? Nothing I do in my own power be fully prepared for whatever that is coming up that I will never discourage again. Conversely, watch this. In spite of my weakness, in spite of my discouragement, if I look to God, if my sincere heart 
and utter dependence of God is really true. It, if God gives me grace, my prayerfulness is not a form of a religiosity, but true heart that I cling to God, that I want God as my stronghold and my fortress more than anything, not as one of the options, then I could triumph. So brothers and sisters, moms who are discouraged that you, you feel like a failure at times, you are not such a good mom at times, you are very harsh on yourself even though you hear all wonderful things. And there's a little bit of truth in that. And that's why Satan uses that. And for even the rest of us, whatever that we're struggling, we tend to think like this. If I overcome this one, now it is home free. There will be no more worries and we went through that, right, too, right? So before we get married, after we got married, I get married, everything will be nice. Then you get just marital problems. and Or after we have kids, you have kids' problems. Or after we don't have any young, young ones, and, and then our teenagers don't talk to us. And then, <laughs> or after we, have, we solve this financial problem, and there's another problem, health problem. You see, something that is so close, we feel like this is what faith is all about, namely prosperity gospel. That's modern-day version of the theology of glory or triumphalism. Somehow, we could muster our faith and be always victorious in our finance, in our health, in our relationships. We come top of all, and then we are the ones that who are making promotions, getting awards, making lots of money. That's not the way of the cross. Paul is saying, I die to myself every day. Unlike super apostles. Was there really joy in that? Or is it some kind of masochistic mindset? Paul is the one who is praising God in the middle of prison. Paul is the one who actually writes about rejoicing so many times in Philippians while he's in dungeon, prison, <coughs> as a prisoner. So brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you and me is that, that we open our eyes of faith. When we see our failure, look to God. And that's an opportunity for us to see our weakness, our stupidity in a sense. Don't bang on ourselves only. Look to God. Satan will love us to dwell in that. Self-pity and self-accusation. And then may God lift us above the circumstances, not because we are unrealistic idealists, but because we are men and women of faith who participates in triumphal procession of Christ, not as victors, but as his captives. I think next Sunday we will continue to apply this in our church situation as well. So I hope and wish all of you a wonderful Mother's Day. And as we celebrate and honor all the moms, 
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. We realize that our fleshly desire is that we shine externally and we um, become victors. And, but actually, in reality, the way we become victors is through our defeat. That we are utterly overcome by you and our fleshly desires and temptations and sin and our prideful attitude is are broken. And this victory is paradoxical to us. So help us to to see that with through the eyes of faith. And I pray for especially those people who are going through discouragement and distress or even sense of failure that you will protect them from Satan's snares and lies and self-condemnation. That you will give us joy that surpasses all understanding and the peace that in spite of the whole world is crumbling down that we could be standing on the level ground, solid rock that is you. For our church, we surrender our smart, uh, self-reliant, worldly wisdom. You lead us, Lord. Help us to experience this kind of victory that you have shown us and even through the zoning issue. Help us not to think that we master that. Help us to become like childlike. In Christ, the victor's name, we pray. Amen.